We are ploughing through uh, our series on the scandal of grace. And the quote we say every week, and I'm going to say again, uh, is from a guy called Sam Albury. Uh, and it, his quote is this, the family that Jesus came from is a picture of the family that Jesus came for. What that means is the, the lineage that Jesus came from is full of a whole bunch of heroes of faith who we quote from all the time, who wrote big chunks of the Bible, but were massively flawed. And the way that God treats them with amazing grace is a reflection of how God treats us today. And so we have this wonderful opportunity to see story after story of different person, but all in some way up, in some way messed up by sin. And we see God meeting with them in powerful and significant ways. And so this week we're looking at Solomon. Um, and I'm going to begin with a John Brown style awkward question uh, because that's how, that's how, because I love John, but it clearly works. Everyone loves it. So when, when was the last time you felt like a hypocrite? When was the last time? This is wonderful, isn't it? I'm working with you. This is good. I'm learning so much from John. When was the last time you felt like a hypocrite? The reality is we always discover these moments sometimes. My, my favorite situation is with parents. And where parents who will tell their young kids a million times what to do or not to do. And in brief, wonderful moments of reflection, they realize, I do exactly what my toddler does. And I tell them over and over again not to do it. And I am such a massive hypocrite. And sometimes maybe um, some of you have friends who aren't Christians. And maybe like me, you have moments where um, you tell people who Jesus is. And what God has called us to do as Christians, to, to be respectful, to be non-judgmental, to be kind, to be gracious. And then they see how we act. And then they see the reality of times when we're, we're just big hypocrites. And there's, there's moments when uh, non-Christians will come to me and say, oh, but just all Christians are hypocrites. I'm like, yeah, yeah, they are. Yes, they are. And what's wonderful is we have a Bible full of hypocrites who God loves and pursues. And Solomon is no different. Solomon is a wonderful, massive hypocrite. And we have much to learn from this guy. And and Solomon gives us so much wisdom and then shows us how to completely ignore that same wisdom. I love the story of Solomon. And so we're going to plow through some of his lesson. But it's, it's so helpful to learn from because it just as when Solomon disobeys his own advice we see a wonderful picture of actually why God calls us to do certain things and to not do certain things. And so we're going to kick off with this um, part in Kings where Solomon is with his dad, King David. And King David is about to die and he's going to hand over his, uh, his throne, if you like, to Solomon. And, he, and, and this happens. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. That's to die. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you turn that the Lord may establish his words that he spoke concerning me saying if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And just to really quickly recap a bit of David's life, we covered it um, two weeks ago. David is amazing and he saw so much of God and so much sin, but then responded with this amazing repentance. 
and we see a real picture of God's grace. And what he's instructing his son is, don't make my mistakes. Follow God, love him, obey his commands. What God says, he says for a reason. He's not, he doesn't make mistakes. Follow him and life will go well. He's talking about wisdom. And we see this next uh, wonderful moment where Solomon has a dream and God comes to him in a dream and asks him, what do you want? What do you want from me that I can give to you? And there's plenty of things that Solomon could ask for. He, you know, he could have asked for riches. He could ask for glory. He could have asked for honor. He could have asked for Xboxes. He doesn't ask for any of that. He asks for understanding mind, an understanding mind, God, to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? This is amazing because he's basically humbly saying, God, I can't do this on my own. I cannot lead your people. I need your help. I need your wisdom. I need your grace. And it's, it's a wonderful picture of a humble leader, kind of a little bit like David in his early life. And it pleases God. And he, says, he, says, he roughly says this, because you've asked for wisdom to serve and not for self-centered things, I will give you a wise and discerning heart, but also give you what you haven't asked for, riches and honor. And we see this as a, a really amazing high point of Solomon's life. That from this moment, he not only becomes really wise, he also becomes really wealthy and successful. He's popular. He's, he's a good king. There isn't any war around him. It's the, the largest that the kingdom gets to of all of in, in Israel's history, history. He is a great king. and is a high point of his life. And so Solomon, at the beginning of his life, writes two particular books that are important. Um, first of all is Proverbs. It's essentially a whole bunch of um, pieces of wisdom on how to live life God's way. And then he writes Song of Solomon, which is um, basically this romantic love story and talks about how to love God's way. And so he's giving all of this amazing teaching and these, all this wonderful advice. And people even come ac- from across the known world to hear his wisdom. He's, he is really at the pinnacle of being a wise guy. But just like David, Solomon manages to screw all of this up. He does an amazing job of being a hypocrite. And he manages to shipwreck his faith. Like nicking a phrase from the New Testament, he manages to shipwreck his faith. He managed to, to trash the most important thing that David commanded him to do, which is follow God. Trust God, be obedient to him, stay close to him. And we're going to unpack some of the tragedy, which is Solomon screwing up being a king. Okay, it's going to be wonderful. So we're going to go through um, how to shipwreck your faith in three easy steps. And we're, and we're going to begin with how Solomon ignores wisdom. And if we go all the way back to, um, so David spoke about follow the things that Moses wrote. And one of the books that Moses wrote was Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy, it says this, And a king of Israel shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Now, in the story we're about to unpack, we see that Solomon, he actually completely ignores that. And he actually completely ignores a whole bunch of other instructions that God has given him. And the irony of it is this is another thing that Solomon wrote. He says this, Cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. He says, my son, come sit down next to the fire with me. Let me tell you about how you should obey instruction when God gives it to you. Because God knows what he's talking about. And then as we will read about a little bit later on, we'll get to it. He goes and completely ignores that and goes against it. 
Here's some Proverbs that Solomon writes. In good faith, these are right things. He writes them and then ignores them later on, but they're good things that we need to listen to. He says this in the beginning of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What he's saying is, before you get knowledge or wisdom about anything else, you need to know God. You need to know God. You are not going to understand yourself, other people, or this world we live in unless you know the creator who made all of it in the first place. And it's true for our generation. When I became a Christian, so much of the world made sense that just was meaningless, was frustrating, was confusing before. And when I met God, the creator of everything I'd ever known, it started to make sense. Oh, this is why. This is why you made the world in this way. And it was, if you like, the beginning of knowledge. I couldn't really fully understand anything that God had made until I knew God himself. So first of all, it's our vertical wisdom. Second of all, the second proverb, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. First one was vertical wisdom, our wisdom we get from, from knowing God. The second one is wisdom we get from godly people around us. So the reality is, some of you have seen the internet and you know all the wisdom out there is, is not good wisdom, right? Some of you have, have, have noticed this. Um, but the reality is there are people that God has put in our lives around us who are wise, you know, we have questions about, what do I do with this bit of my life? What do I do with this particular decision? We have been surrounded by godly people who love Jesus and love us. And I think something I learned the hard way um, through making mistakes is when you don't open your life up to wisdom, you don't get wisdom, right? There are godly people in this church, and they're not going to break into your life. They're not going to kick down your door and be like, come on, like, stop making stupid decisions. Let's talk about this. Let's open the Bible. Like, that's not how we get wisdom. We get wisdom by being honest and saying, let's chat. Can, can we hang out a bit? Can I share a bit of my life with you and just hear your, your wisdom and your knowledge and your advice? And I learned um, through making mistakes and, and just missing things that, sh- that are obvious to someone who's a bit older than me, who's got a bit more wisdom that I really need other people's advice in my life. And now, and now I love it. Now I, I'm really, really careful. I'm like, right, if someone who's particularly wise is talking to me, I need to get notes. I need to be writing this stuff down. This stuff is really important. So if you're ever talking to me and I'm on my phone, it's because I really respect your wisdom. That's entirely why. That, that may be true. That may be true. But the, the point is, and, and Six O'Clock Church, this is why it's particularly important for you guys. This church is majority not people in your demographic, Okay. You have a church full of people who all of the struggles you're going through now, and I'm being generalist, I appreciate not all of you are in your 20s and single, but for those of you who are, this church is full of people who every decision you're wrestling with at the moment, every frustration you have, every big question you have, there are people in this church who have wrestled with this for decades. And I'm pleading with you. I made tons of mistakes, and I will potentially make many more mistakes but by seeking wisdom it is, is something that gives life. It is something that God wants to bless us through other people. You are not an island. Whatever the internet will tell you, you are not an individual. You cannot get everything you need off Wikipedia, right? There are men and women, some of them in this meeting, who you need to do relationship with because God has put them in this church for a reason, to be a blessing, okay? And there are, and I'm, I'm laboring this point a little bit because it's really important. There are people who are in this meeting today who 
um, let's say the general demographic is very different to their stage of life. They're, some of you are laughing. Stop it. <laughs> I'm trying to be subtle. <laughs> so, and if they're being honest, this isn't the most comfortable meeting for them. Oh, great, you play synth music and the, it's full of like dark lights and it's at a completely antisocial time. That's great. Yeah, I'd love to come to that meeting. But the reality is there are people in this meeting because they want to be a blessing. Because they want to see the kingdom of heaven in younger people's lives. And they are a massive blessing. They, they make this meeting so much better. And I cannot, I cannot stress the importance of how older people, like this old guy called Ted, who I used to hang out with when I first became a Christian. And he, he, I don't know how old he was then, but he's, it's now 10 years later and he's still alive. And I chatted to him on Facebook the other day and I'm like, I've no idea how you're still alive. You're so old. But he was such a blessing. And me at 17 was so different to him at whatever age he was. But he was such a blessing in my life. We all need a Ted. We all need a Ted. We all need an older guy in our life who has been through the things that we stress about and we, 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 we panic over and can think, it's fine, it's okay. Let me pray for you. Let me pray with you. Let me show you how to do life. Let me show you, and in his case, it was, he, showed, he showed me a little bit about what it was to be a good husband. He showed me a little bit about what it was to pray. He showed me a little bit about what it was to you know, deal with things that you don't always agree with in church, Right? Like, and, and he modeled this for me in such an amazing way. And I'm laboring this in a way I didn't do at Welling because we need this. At our 20-something stage of life, we desperately need this. And our world will say, oh, people, we don't need them. Oh, guys, I'm really sorry. We, we, don't, we don't need them. The Bible says otherwise. The Bible says, shut up and listen. Shut up and listen to those who are wiser than you, who have more wisdom than you, who have been through life. And it is is a lesson we can go over over and over again but I, I will stop there there's other stuff to go through and the first way to shipwreck your faith is to ignore wisdom so let's not do that now moving on to the, the next step we start to see um, more of King Solomon's story that will make more sense of why he ignored wisdom so back into kings again now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives. Yes, that's 700 wives. Who were princesses and 300 concubines. For those who aren't good at maths, that's a thousand women in his life. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. And then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Right, I'll, I'll begin with, this is a really um, messed up piece of scripture. There is so much cultural stuff that does not make sense in that. It seems so odd after a guy who's written all of this wisdom to do something that seems so weird. Let's begin with a little bit of cultural context. 
For a start, in that culture, it was very common to marry someone to bless them. Okay, So um, particularly for a woman who was vulnerable, you would often marry them as a way of supporting them and honoring them. Um, Also, if you were a king or a business leader, it was often very prudent. It was good wisdom in a worldly sense to marry the leader of another country. Okay, so that's why you, start, you see Solomon and all of these kings' names being thrown about the place from different countries, and he married their women in part because he thought he was being a really good king. In part because by making alliances, it meant there wasn't war, and he was, in theory, doing a good job of being a king. The difficulty was he was being completely disobedient to God. And what he was doing was modeling his kingship on how all the other kings did it. And so we'd look at, well, what do the other kings do to make peace and to be prosperous? Okay, I'll go do that. And what he's done is directly disobeyed what God said in Deuteronomy. A king of Israel shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. And exactly that happened. That rather than obeying what his dad had told him, which is follow God, love him with all of your heart, don't compromise. He goes and marries people he shouldn't have married. And his heart starts to be drawn in other directions. We see uh, there's that phrase where he, he, he builds these high places. These are the places where you worship to idols, where you literally build these big statues to another false god. It is the ultimate middle finger to God. And how did he get there? Did he suddenly one day think, I'm going to build a high place to a false god? No. Over years, with these wives, his heart was changed. His heart was hardened to God. And we see this is really the significant downfall of Solomon. And this, there's lots of questions here. It's worth mentioning really briefly what concubines were. It's a really odd phrase. It's basically someone who has a lower status than a wife, but has some of the same functions as a wife. It's all practical. And it's messy. It's messy and basically all a really bad idea. Like, here's why. God, God makes it very clear what marriage is and isn't. And we need to talk about this tonight. We need to talk about this tonight because partly when I became a Christian, um, I I, I began to understand who God was. I understood what forgiveness was. I began to understand what the Holy Spirit was. But it took me quite a a while to understand what God taught marriage was. And as I've got older in the last decade, I think it's just got more difficult to understand within our cultural context what marriage is. It's just got more confusing. Like, I work for a company called Mumsnet, uh, which I find hilarious. Uh, For those of you who are familiar with what Mumsnet is, I am neither a mum or, you know, the kind of people who even goes on Mumsnet. But I work at Mumsnet. That's how it is. And one of the fascinating things with Mumsnet is how um, gender, gender roles, how marriage works is, it has changed over the last 10 years. Mumsnet has a majority base of um, maybe older women um, who uh, think about things as the modern world was maybe 10, 20 years ago. Uh, and so it's really fascinating seeing these new um, kind of ideas of what gender and marriage all mean. And they're all thinking, we fought for feminism like 10, 20 years ago. And now the goalposts have changed. And, and now there's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of frustration, there's a lot of fighting, if any of you have been on Mum's Net. Um, and and it's, it's a mess, it's so complicated. And, but what we see is the Bible, thank God, talks about marriage a lot. We see the Bible begins with a marriage. Look, God made Adam, and he said it's not good for Adam to be alone. He surrounded him with animals, 
but apparently it wasn't okay for Adam to be a cat man, right? So it was like, it's not good for him to be alone. And, and, he, and he created for him a wife. And he said, this is good. And he officiated the first wedding. And we see this wonderful picture of the oneness that God intended marriage to look like. And very quickly we see sin and the curse just like added a whole bunch of problems, a whole bunch of destruction. We zip forward to the end of the Bible and we see another wedding. This time a wedding between Jesus and his bride, the church. And it's a, it's a picture of God's love for us. That God talks about a marriage with his bride, the church, as I love you, I am for you no matter what. And throughout all the middle, between those two events, we see all of this teaching on what marriage should and shouldn't be. And plenty of examples of good marriage and plenty of examples of, like Solomon, bad marriage. A thousand wives and concubines. That's really bad marriage. But we see lots of pictures of this so God can teach us what we should be doing with our life. And this is a conversation we're going to briefly have. And I'm going to be, I'm doing my best to be both, um, I guess, careful in the way we talk about relationships. Because I know there's a lot of people here who have been hurt. There's a lot of people here with frustrations. But at the same time, this is a really significant subject. If any of you were anything like me, this was on my mind all the time when I was single. Um, And I've been married for maybe the last three years, but the majority of my walk with God has been as a single guy. And uh, I made plenty of mistakes. I made one particular really big mistake that I'm going to share with you guys tonight. Uh, You're very welcome. Uh, I've got the mic. I can decide what stories I share. So when I became a Christian, one of the first things I did in my wisdom was date someone who wasn't a Christian. And I thought it was a great idea because I, I knew no better and apparently hadn't read the Bible. And um, I, I started dating this girl and you know what? I love this girl. I got on with her so well. She, uh, she, I thought she was really cool. She wanted to write for NME, which when you're 17, like, that's as cool as it gets. It doesn't get more cool than that. And, um, and we got on really well and we had loads of things in common. And I, I thought that was it. You know, I could be a Christian over here and then date someone who, you know, didn't believe the same things as me. But that was fine. And um, what I began to do was I basically put all my trust in this girl. I put my hope, my joy, my, um, all of my trust in this girl. And then when she broke up with me, I was gutted. I cried like a prom queen for months. I was distraught. I was distraught because my God was not Jesus. My God was this girl. And she let me down. And the first mistake I'd made that I just wish I'd had more conversations with older people, being like, you know, that's a really stupid idea. Because I put all my hope in this girl. That was the first mistake. The second mistake was I dated someone having no idea what God meant for romantic relationships. Not everyone here will get married, and that's okay. Paul and Jesus actually say being single was great. You know, Paul says, hey, I wish more of you were like me and single. Because stuff gets really complicated when you get married. Like, you've got so much more stuff to think about. The presents on their own are immensely complicated. And, and difficult affairs that I, I have spreadsheets, I have so much stuff. It takes so much time. And in some sense, I love my lovely wife dearly. But life, in some sense, is simpler when you are single. So if you are single, that's okay. That's not a bad thing. But if you wish... To be in a romantic relationship, that's not a bad thing. But let's listen to what God has to say about relationships. We zip forward to Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, he says, Paul says this. 
Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? So I, I didn't know this verse for I think at least the first year of being a Christian. And it's a really difficult verse because we live in a culture that values freedom of choice above anything else. I want to be able to order a very specific type of food to my house by tomorrow. Amazon Prime will get you that. I have all the personal choice I want because at a click of a button, I can get whatever the heck I like. I want to make decisions about where I will live, where I will work, who I will date, and I want that right now. I don't want to wait. This is the culture that we live in. This very spontaneous. I want things now. I don't want to wait. I want it right now. You can go online, find it. And we live in a culture that, that sees waiting as a bad thing rather than a positive thing, as much as the Bible tells us. We also live in a culture that says, no one can tell you what is right or wrong. And yet God says, I made you in a very specific way. I made you to work in a certain way. I lovingly created you to operate in a certain way. I have a car, and it's a bit of a piece of junk, but it does work. And if someone who has not used a car before and doesn't know how it was supposed to work just goes at it, just tries loads of things, figures it out on, the, on their own, it would go really badly. You know, someone would probably be liable. It would go, someone would end up in the hospital. It would be terrible. And yet we get to our bodies, we get to romantic relationships, and we're like, I'll figure it out on the way. I'll I'll figure it out, it'll be fine. I'll just see what feels good. Imagine if you did driving like that. You're like, I'll just see what feels good. I'll just close my eyes, it'll be fine. I've got a real feeling for the left pedal, the left pedal it is. You know, you you don't do that way. And yeah, and I appreciate this is a flawed analogy in some way, but the reality is God has lots to say about what we do with our relationships because it matters. And I'm, I'm laboring this point because it, 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 it breaks me, to be honest. The number of people in my life who I have loved and known as a Christian, who for one reason or another have compromised their walk with God because instead they've pursued a relationship that they probably shouldn't have done. They have put their eggs all in one basket that will not last. They have run from the true comfort, the true hope, uh, the true salvation to one that one way or another will let you down. I'm sorry to break it to you if you have romantic dreams of what marriage will be, but it will not satisfy you. It will not give you the hope that you look for. And it's difficult to understand all of Solomon's motivation, but maybe his thousand women were desperate hopes to find that one perfect woman. He didn't find it. We read in Ecclesiastes later on, he didn't find it. And friends, if, if there is a longing in your heart for a relationship in a way that says, then I will be happy. No, you won't. Paul makes it quite clear, your, your worries will actually multiply a little bit. Um, so the reality is, our hope is only found in Jesus. And I know we know that and we say that, but we, and particularly when I was single, I had to tell myself this over and over again, that getting a relationship, getting a marriage will not fix things. The other thing that we do need to approach is non-Christians. Do we as Christians date people who aren't Christians? I've heard things like, um, but they've been asking loads of really good questions about God. Or they're, they're actually really, they want to come to church, they want to come visit. Here is the difficult truth. If you're dating someone who's a non-Christian, the worst person to share Jesus with is you. Is you. 
Because here is the difficulty, and I found this when I was dating a non-Christian. I, I was totally compromising my walk with God. Jesus called me to lay my life down, to follow him in response to his overwhelming grace. And I'd say, I'll give you bits of me. I'll, I'll give you the bit of me that isn't really that valuable, but the bit of me that really is valuable, I'm keeping for myself. My witness to this girl was the worst. And I have no idea where this girl is right now, but I, I doubt her picture of God is the true one. The image of God I painted for her was not one of a God who lovingly laid down his life. So we, in response, lay down our life and give it to him. And I guess the other thing as well is that it's not good for us. What that, um, what that verse says in Corinthians is that how can you be unequally yoked with unbelievers? Yoked is a bit of a weird word. Uh, we don't use it in our culture because none of us are farmers. But let me explain what a yoke is. So imagine this. You've got two oxen. They're like big cows. Two oxen with a piece of wood across their backs. And they're pulling a plow in a straight line in that direction. And here's the point. If both of those cows are going in the same direction, this works. If they're going that way, everything goes wrong. And if you try and align your life with someone who's running away from God and you're trying to run towards God, it's just going to be painful. And I know this church is full of many wonderful people who, for one reason or another, are married to someone who's not a Christian. The Bible's very clear. Marriage is good. Marriage is a good thing. Stay married. But for those of you who are not yet married... You have some decisions ahead of you. I, I don't know what it's like for you, but I found with people who weren't Christians, there were so many opportunities to pursue relationships or to get involved with them. And I said yes when I first became a Christian and learned I need to start saying no. I need to start saying no to something that my worldly desires cry out for. I, I want to spend time, I want someone to know me really well, I want intimacy. And, and yet God has called me to honour him first, to follow him, to have, if I ever do get married, to marry someone who actually loves Jesus. And three years ago, I married my lovely wife, Amy, and she, uh, she actually listened to advice and just didn't date anyone until me. I'm so honoured. I am so blessed. And one of my only regrets is that I didn't do the same thing for her. Now, what's wonderful is there is grace for any of you who have made these mistakes, there is grace. And I found the most amazing forgiveness from God for doing something that offended him and messed me up, really. But God, there is so much grace. And that is the wonderful news. But at the same time, if you have decisions to make, it's worth waiting. I promise you, it's worth waiting. There's so many opportunities to compromise in this world. Some of you will be familiar with an app called Tinder. I once had to make, I'm an iOS developer, so I once had to make an app that was kind of similar to Tinder, but for business networking. So it wasn't anywhere near as shady. But it was, but I, I had this weird moment where I had to have Tinder for a little while. And it was really funny because it was like a photo of me getting married on Tinder. It was the, the weirdest situation. And I found it hilarious. My wife less so. But I, I, but I had to, as, as like practice for, you know, essentially building this app, I had to explain it with it a little bit. And Tinder, for those of you who have not, heard of it um it's a pretty big deal in london it's a pretty big deal uh and oh, i've got some facts about it here here we go okay the average tinder user spends an hour a day on tinder and here's basically what it is you have a whole bunch of people's profiles right they're people who have logged in with their facebook profile you see their image bit of their bio that's it and you make a decision 
on whether you'd like to date this person, you swipe um, yes or no. And you do that with loads of people. Apparently, an hour's worth of people. Um, but that is, look, this is the city that we live in, right? This is very normal. And, and, and we have a culture at the moment that wants relationships in that way. I want it now, and I want it to be someone who likes me so I don't have to take the risk and potentially you know, speak to someone who might not like me. And we live in a culture that is... So, dis- so different, so far away from the beautiful picture of what God has in marriage. Here's, here's, here's what really helped me. As a single person, here's what was helpful. Seeing God's glorious picture of what marriage was. That it was completely worth waiting for. That it was so much better than compromising in any way. And I appreciate, for some of you, um, this is not an easy thing to hear. This is, maybe you completely disagree with me right now. Maybe you're dating someone who isn't a Christian. And I would say, because I love you, this is not because I'm married and you should all be like me. This is because I made a mistake and I saw the pain that came from it. Please don't continue with that. Please don't go down that route. It's not worth it. The Bible pleads with you and I'm pleading with you. I don't know most of you, but I plead with you. Don't make this mistake. I know so many people, I can list their first names because they'll never know I mentioned this. A guy called Johnny, who was a really good friend with me. We did life together. And he, he just wanted to date people. He just wanted to date people and he chose to walk away from God because that was more important to him than knowing Jesus. I'm like, how can you make this decision? We talked about the grace of God so much. How could you miss this? I've got other friends, lists and lists and lists of friends who... They, when it came down to it, and it was either this guy or girl who's interested in me or following Jesus, I'll take the guy or girl. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. None of them can give you what Jesus ultimately can give you. And none of them are worth it. If you're a Christian and you love God, it is phenomenal having a wife or a husband with you who loves Jesus, who loves God. Like one of the biggest joys the last three years getting to do ministry with my lovely wife is getting to love Jesus with her, is getting to spend time with her and other people and pray for other people. Like, these are amazing joys. And I thank God that this girl from when I first became a Christian dumped me. It was honestly one of the best times in my life. And I had no idea at the time, but it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. And I, I appreciate I've laboured this point over and over again, but if, if I were there 10 years ago, I wish someone would have told me. And so I'm telling you now, it is the best decision you can make is to say no, because you're saying yes to something far better. Is that okay? Awesome. I'll start talking about relationships now. Uh, you can unlock the doors, Niall. Uh, we're, all, <laughs> we're all okay. Okay, so uh, the first way to shipwreck your faith is to ignore wisdom. The second way is bad relationships. The third way is to love wealth. So we aren't told how um, Solomon's wealth affected him, but we are told a little bit about what God instructed him. So we go back to that verse in Deuteronomy. I didn't read the whole of it. Here's what the whole verse says. And a king of Israel shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when we look a little bit at um, what Solomon's wealth was, we start to see he not only screwed up the wives one, he also screwed up the excessive silver and gold one. It says this of, of Solomon. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels in his house, all of them, 
in the forests of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. Isn't that the most like P. Dilly Instagram kind of stupid thing you've ever heard in the Bible? What is this silver? That's ridiculous. It's the kind of thing you expect to come from the Kardashians, not from Solomon. So I find this hilarious. Um, but it's also an indication really of where he's at with money. That this guy is so utterly minted. Here's what the New Testament says about money. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money is, is not what God made you for. God made you to desire greatness, glory, wonderful things, but that is found more truly in Christ than anything of this world. And that's why time and time again, in fact, to be really, really clear, 2,350 times the Bible talks about money. Right? Jesus says, where your money is, that's where your heart is. And so we can ask a very honest question. I'm not going to get you to tell me, but you know yourselves. Where is your money? Where have you placed your money in? What have you invested in? Where have you, what, what things have you bought? What stuff have you really dashed, um, spent a lot of money on? And that's where often our heart is. And here's the difficulty. Even as Christians, we see that money affects us loads. And often in quite careful and subtle ways. Money impacts our relationship with God, right? When our desire is for money, it doesn't give us space for our desire to be for God. Money is the chief competitor of Christ for lordship over our lives. Jesus said you can serve one God, God or money. That's the choice. You can't serve two masters. Number three, money molds our character. So if there is such a danger, such a danger of money um, overtaking our love for Jesus, if there is such a, a danger for money to shipwreck our faith, what do we do with it? What do we do with money? Here's what the Bible tells us to do, to give it away. To give it away. If you want to, and for a moment, forgive this imagery, Satan wants you. He wants your life. He wants your desires. And one of the things he'll use is money. Another thing he'll use is relationships, but we've talked about that already. One thing he'll use is money. And so one way to take Satan and to punch him right in the face is to give money away. Satan hates it when you give money away. And there's loads of good things you can give money, give money to and how much doesn't necessarily matter. But here are two things I've always found really helpful. Advice I've listened to and praise God I've remembered. Giving should be sacrificial and it should be joyful. Sacrificial, it should hurt. There be, should be something of saying, God, this is tough. There's loads of good things I could spend this on. But you are better. I trust in you. I give some of my money away so that I actually trust in you. I don't trust in my wealth. I don't trust in my savings. I don't trust in my mortgage. I don't trust in my nice car. I trust in you alone. It also needs to be joyful, right? Here is a wonderful thing of grace. If we were Mormons, we're not. If we were Mormons, this would not be a joyful thing. If we were Muslims, this would not be a joyful thing. If we were Jehovah's Witnesses, etc., 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 we believe in a God of grace. We don't have to give so that God will give back to us. God, please, I'll give and give and give so that you will give back to me. Praise God. We don't follow a God who only gives when we've given to him first. We follow a God of grace. 
He loved us whilst we were still in our sins. We were giving nothing to him. The only thing we were giving to him is the middle finger. That was it. And yet God gave and gave and gave to us. And we give fundamentally out of worship. God, I love you. Out of reckless abandon, I will give to kill the enemy's hold on my life and to give worship to you. And friends, that's why we give. And I I probably need to really lay this in because I've had some conversations with people who have been a Christian for long enough to know you probably should be giving. It's just a good discipline of the soul. If you don't give in a sacrificial way, you are missing out. And I appreciate, I kind of have to do this weird, like, I kind of get paid by the church, so yes, I have some, I'm not completely impartial on this. Fundamentally, whether you give to this church or something else, whatever else, like, give, because it's good for your soul, because it's good for your walk with God. Because I know when I give, something happens in me, I say, God, I love you. What a wonderful opportunity to give back to you and to trust you completely. These are wonderful things. So I've covered two um, uncomfortable, difficult subjects, and you're still with me. This is good. This is wonderful. We're going to make it to the end together. We're going to finish on um, talking through some bits of Ecclesiastes. Solomon wrote those two first books at the beginning of his life, and commentators think that he wrote Ecclesiastes at the end of his life. And although we don't see all of the details that we do in David's life of how he screwed up and what God said and how it worked, um, we do see uh, Solomon after the end of his life, after making all these mistakes, marrying all these people he shouldn't have done, getting all this wealth he shouldn't have done, we see this. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got both singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. What he's saying here is, I had everything I wanted. Everything I wanted, I could get hold of. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon probably achieved in his life more than any of us will do. That's a chance. I mean, he wrote three books of the Bible. He had immense wealth. Look, just to put this in perspective, he earned 666 talents of gold a year. I have no idea what a talent is, so I looked it up. And that is the equivalent of 1.3 billion pounds a year. Isn't that crazy? That was his yearly annual income. And he says, it was all as nothing. It was all as nothing. None of it counted for anything. The reality is, although he was in a different culture, the truth is still the same. Wealth is not enough. Christ alone, the riches in Jesus are all we need. The forgiveness we get in Christ, the relationship, the eternal riches, the things that last for longer than just this lifetime we get in Christ are far more worthy than anything else we could ever earn. And this is a wonderful truth that will guard us and protect us. We see one other final bit from Ecclesiastes. He says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Someone looks back on his life and he says, I've wasted so much of it. I've spent it on silly things I shouldn't have done. I've actually been disobedient to the the God who gave me everything I have. I've wasted so much of it. The end goal of man is this, to love God, to be in awe of him, to follow him, to trust him, to love him. This this is who we are, friends. There are two types of people I think this particularly speaks to today. Uh, Some of you uh, relate more to Solomon the Younger, 
right? Solomon the Younger, before he'd made tons of bad mistakes and when he was all fresh and bright-eyed and ready for the world and he needed wisdom. He needed wisdom. He was a fool who needed instruction and he at the time admitted it but later in life didn't, didn't go by his own instruction. And for some people you feel more like the older Solomon, the Ecclesiastes Solomon who looks back on his life and it's full of mistakes. It's full of things he thinks, oh man, I wish I'd done that differently. I wish I'd not married those thousand people. I wish I'd not screwed up my life in such monumental ways. I wish I'd made different decisions. I wish I'd listened to that person at just that right time. I wish I'd spent time. I wish I'd surrounded myself with people who weren't just like me. And I'd listened to someone else's wisdom. I wish I'd known the Bible and what it says. And some of you look back on a life like that and it's full of regret. Maybe it's full of shame. Maybe it's full of guilt. The good news is this. We have a God of grace. We have a God of amazing grace. And there is hope for you today.